Your life is not over if your ATAR score isn't exactly what you hoped and dreamt for initially, because it's recalculated after you've done some more study. It's recalculated if you do a TAFE diploma. It's recalculated if you're employed and have recognition of your learning there. Welcome to Illumin. I'm Jacinda Ryla, Principal of Brisbane Girls Grammar School and your host. Today I'm speaking with Professor Adam Shoemaker, Vice-Chancellor and President of Victoria University. He is also a trustee of Girls Grammar. Professor Shoemaker's long and distinguished academic career has seen him work for some of Australia's leading universities, including Griffith University in QUT here in Queensland, the Australian National University in Canberra and Monash in Melbourne. He's held numerous board roles, including on the Queensland Curriculum and Assessment Authority and Open Universities Australia. He has a fascinating insight into the importance of secondary and tertiary education in our society and is very well versed on many emerging trends. Adam, welcome to Illumin. It's fantastic to be here and to be with you. It's just great. Adam, I'm going to start our conversation in the here and the now. Mm. As you and I speak today, it's sort of getting towards the end of January. Mm -hmm. Our students have got their ATARs before Christmas. Now they're starting to think about their university acceptance places. What, and particularly, you have experience, obviously, as a former board member of QCAA here Mm. in Queensland. You understand the ATAR system very intimately. Why do you think we put so much importance still on the ATAR or A-score as at that point of entry into universities? Is it still valid into the future or not? Look, it's valid to some extent. Mm-hmm. And there's always, everyone always wants to measure everything by something. It's a rank, by the way. It's not an absolute, as people often think. And so I think the most pernicious thing is when people describe something as a so-called perfect enter score, ATAR score, because that's all relative to the population base that applies in that year. No such thing as perfection on planet Earth that I've seen. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that, you know, in the top 20% of applicants, it's a pretty good indicator of incredible work ethic and opportunity. But the problem is this. Not everyone ignites, catches fire, or gets into the zone of what they want to do in their lives at the same age. Because it's a universally applied thing at a certain stage and age, some people excel, and others fall by the wayside who ultimately contribute to society in a hugely beneficial and important way. So the problem is it's not the be-all and end-all, and yet it's often deemed to be. So I do believe there's going to be, have to be a better, more nuanced, and more personalized system rather than a broad brush one. I mean, you could say the same thing in, in large measure about NAPLAN as well. It has some strengths, comparatively so, but it hasn't stopped or started us from doing great things. If anything, it might have made us feel a bit worse comparatively about how we sit in relation to Southeast Asia. That's the problem. So if you think there's scope for schools and universities to work together more closely to refine and adapt those pathways to universities, how might they go about it in your view? We have to be open to new ways of thinking. Let's just imagine that the system is not fatally flawed, but it is slightly broken, okay? It's broken through kind of an obsession on certain forms of in-stopped exams. It's broken by virtue of certain degrees and careers being thought as the only ones which are tenable at the time when we're inventing new ones all the time. So it's a bit narrow, weirdly. Even though it's a universal system, it's a bit narrow. So I think as we're seeing society go with developing new professions all the time, how do we enliven something which enables that to happen? I think it's an insertion model. So schools reach up into tertiary more, and tertiary reaches into schools more, and that the area in between 
is the fantastic fertile area. That's what I'd like to see happen. Adam, I guess taking us back to the beginnings of your career, could you tell us a little about what you studied and how that led to the delegation of the Commission of European Committees? Well, look, the truth of the matter is one doesn't absolutely know when you do a Bachelor of Arts what will happen next. But I had the most fantastic experience doing a BA in history and literature at Queen's University in Ontario, and also a very international staff, some of whom had been Australian, some from Africa, and one of whom was very passionate about postgraduate work in this nation, in Australia. So you get sort of directed through doing things well, but also even better by people who profess it well, and that's exactly what happened to me. So then I came to ANU in the early 80s on what was called a Commonwealth Scholarship, not the Commonwealth of Australia, but the, the British Commonwealth, and they gave you this freedom to choose any university in the country that you could study in. And of course, having grown up in Ottawa, the capital, we just automatically chose ANU, and Canberra. Mm. And it turned out to be an inspired choice. So that's where that happened. Different climate, but uh, a wonderful slightly, university. <laughs> almost the opposite end of the spectrum, indeed. I think there was a 60-degree range between when I got on the plane and got off, mm-hmm. and that hit me for about a week or two, and then I recovered, and away we went. And here you still are. Yes. How did that lead over to Europe? Well, the European thing was fascinating. I had had a lot of contact with European institutions in Canada, and you know the, the French, English, bicultural and bilingual nature of, of Canada was very profound. So at a young age, I'd actually had attended a camp with 12 different nations when I was in I was only 11 years old in Europe and it was really the, the beginning of my international experience there were people from Poland and from the Netherlands and from the UK and so on so even from an early age I was really aware of the European uh, community as it was developing so when the chance came to apply it actually seemed really logical because after all they wanted someone who could speak French and English bilingually but also had a very broad-based knowledge of public affairs and how to invoke it. And that international experience and outlook has certainly been important in your current role as, mm. as Vice-Chancellor and President of Victoria University. I often like to ask people you know what is it that they enjoy about their role what do they find inspiring and also what are some of the challenges that you face in that role? Well, there's a, there's a daily level of satisfaction with colleagues and collegial behaviour. We have, I think it's all about the people with whom one works. And fortunately, for example, the Chancellor is this incredibly adept and experienced former Premier, Steve Brax, with whom I, I work closely and learn from, you know, weekly. So I think that's first attraction is on the personal level. But equally, our executive colleagues, the level of, of intelligence and humour and incisiveness is just profound. So what I look forward to most is the, you know, what you learn daily from others. And it's It's just marvellous. If we go back to young you, young Adam, at the age of about 18, as you were starting out, leaving school, you know, you certainly wouldn't have imagined the path that your career has taken. What do you think you've gained from having such a diverse, somewhat meandering career in in many respects? And and how does that tie, I'm sure you've seen the recent McCrindle research suggesting that, of course, the norm for Gen Z will be to have multiple careers? Mm. You know, I think it's not a new thing. If you look at history, I mean, it actually was relatively rare to have a single employer for a a career. Even in medieval times, you'd be lucky to, you know, survive if you just did one thing. And so the truth is that I think being ready and able to switch the capability to, to alter was something we were taught very, very well in Canada. And it was the capacity, everything from learning Latin in terms of languages and French everything from learning politics and history and their interpolation. So I think always we were saying, you know, the idea was 
how can you deal with what's happening next without knowing what's there necessarily so you can move quickly? We often have that question about the value of a broad liberal education versus something that's very narrow and vocational and it's clearly a place for both. Mm. Where do you sit on that spectrum and how important do you think it is to have that broad exposure? I think the the breadth, the preceding breadth is very, very helpful. It's a bit like how many times have you heard someone say, gosh, that, that woman's a fantastic rock musician, but did you know she's classically trained? You know, people sort of talk like that. There's a very significant insight in that, which is to say the breadth leads to the specialization. It's harder to go the other way. So I think that, you know, being open to the world and then narrowing down in different ways makes a lot of logical sense. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's a great, a great privilege of, of the systems that we both lived in, in Canada and here. And the narrowing is often tied to people's developing passions Correct. and particular interests that you may not know as you're starting out. Adam, you have said some of the biggest challenges that we face at the moment are economic structural change, climate mm-hmm. change we've heard so much about, demographic, health and social issues. What's your approach to tackling them? And, you know, because quite frankly, they are very complex and wide-ranging issues. Yes, they they are. And the best thing I can do is probably talk about the the local environment where we're working in Victoria at the minute. So if you can just imagine the west of Melbourne, a population of 1.2 million people, about the size of Adelaide, but incredibly diverse. It's probably nearly 170 different languages being spoken in the west. And many people, 51%, 52% have never had the benefit of any tertiary education in terms of that population and an unemployment rate of about 24% for youth. You know, this is the modern Australia like movement of people to this nation and it's incredible area of capacity building. So all the things you mentioned are, if you like, signaled by how well do we do in such areas. You can think of areas of Brisbane, which would be similar, Western Sydney, parts of Adelaide. It's not unique, but it is very, very much the case. So this is our future and how to define it. And so how do you approach it? How do, how do you, I guess, in that little microcosm that you're working within and indeed serving mm. through education, how do you approach it? Well, I think you look for the strengths that are being built. There's never anything, I won't even say deficit model other than once because it's so inappropriate. These are strengths of multilingual people, often who have skills way beyond what we think. And it's just a matter of, for, for example, accent or language that holds them back. But also just think of it this way. If you're a paramedic, attending someone in the home in an emergency, let's say a MICA paramedic, you know, it's Mm. the highest level. If someone speaks another language like Vietnamese and you Mm. can't communicate in a crisis, what are you going to do? How well will you serve their care? So this is very, very practical to turn around what was thought erstwhile as being a weakness into an absolute strength and actually for society as well. You've obviously encouraged a great deal of innovation at Victoria University, obviously before you arrived and, and since your tenure began. One of the things that you've been looking at, though, is novel learning methods, particularly over the last couple of years, including block study and dual sector learning. Can you tell us what that means and why that's new and and why that's exciting? For sure. Well, look, let's unpick the the terms just to make them more understandable. Dual sector just means having skills-based education of the highest caliber, degree-based professional and intrusive education in terms of the professions of the highest caliber under the same roof. So what we are saying is three things. One, they're strengthened by virtue of being collaborative and, and, you know, neighborly, but more importantly, If we don't have an ethical aligned industry partner on each campus, we're defining that as not being a campus. 
We're saying that's a new model of, you know, what the world needs, but pick wisely and pick very carefully, especially in the post-COVID universe. Can I pick up on that, the dual sector learning you're seeing as quite a significant differentiator for Mm. your university, but what do you think the students gain from this, in particular, this approach? Well, here's here's how one could look at it. The block model, so-called, is really what you might describe as an intensive, focused, individualized model of four weeks one subject at a time, like a master class. Mm-hmm. So isn't it odd that we say master classes in the arts or in the professions or for an MBA are highly desirable, but when you do it in the undergraduate sphere, it's something new. So we're actually saying the pedagogy of this is crucial. The biggest thing was this, one faculty for all first-year students in every discipline in the university under one roof again, one leadership, mm-hmm. and all then working to understand what each other does, not just individually. So this is both the way the world works in the professional environment and the way we can teach as well. So the truth is, block model means if you need to speed up, you can. If you need to slow down, you can. But the choice is in the hands of the student, not just us. And what's been a surprise for you in that approach? You've been around a very long time. You have been involved in numerous universities and different models of delivering education. Has there been anything that surprised you? Absolutely. Like I I was so used to the idea of people transitioning to higher ed at the age of about 17, 18 and denominating everything around that. The average age of our students is mid-30s. You know, so take the law school. I spoke with a wonderful woman last week who has six children. She's commenced law study. She's one of the best students we've ever seen. And she's been managing full-time care, full-time work, and now study in her mid-30s. She's racing ahead, and she never could have done it at the age of 20. So at the right moment, at the right time, having the right skills in the opening, that's what's an incredibly wonderful surprise. I think one of the things you've spoken about is that point of, you know, year 12 and the ATAR or whatever qualification our students might be going for being a particular point in time and not everything coalesces perfectly at that point of time. Would you like to pick up on your thoughts about that? Because I think that's Mm -hmm. what you're alluding to with someone returning or commencing university in their 30s. Look, truth is, If we all knew when we were going to catch fire in terms of education, we'd tell each other. But many people don't. That moment of ignition varies for every person. And, you know, sometimes males and females do or people from different genders or, you know, any sort of thing. And especially so after a world crisis like the pandemic. So the number of students have said, I can't take it now and I'm not ready is growing. And we really need to have regard for the human factors here. So I'd much rather have someone wait commence when they're ready and succeed, then start and fall by the wayside and, let, and lose confidence. It's really not good for them. It's not good for the institution. It's not good for Australian society either. So I think really looking carefully at when the best moment is, the best op- opportunity and how to advantage, advantage it, that's the key. And it's as you've talked before about personalisation of education at broad scale. You've also talked about a vision that you have to have an industry partner on site at each of your universities by, and you've put a date on it, 2028. Yes. Is this to support the dual sector approach? And what sort of organisations are you imagining that you might partner with? It's better to give an example, Mm -hmm. and I'll start with one. So we've opened a new tower building in the city of Melbourne, which you're aware of, a 26-storey high tower. And in, at a time of COVID, space and time has changed completely. So originally it was designed to have the top four floors for the administration, heaven forbid, even the chancellery. So we came in and looked and said, there's no way that's going to happen. Why don't we just move down the chancellery right with the people in the middle of the building and have our partners at the top? So, for example, a law firm, Sharp and Able, 
all run by fabulous women graduates who are specializing in IP law, is going to be in our campus, on our campus. The partners will teach into the law program. They will enhance it. They'll also offer students the chance to have placements during their degree, not once, not twice, but during, and they will enhance the outcomes too in terms of employability. So if you think that's the model, why haven't we done it before? If we're teaching engineering, why don't we have a, an engineering firm on the campus? Because that's the destination where people are aiming. Why do they have to go somewhere else, bring it together, insert it, collect it and coalesce it. That's the model. And it certainly seems to be part of your educational philosophy to emphasise the importance of partnerships. Mm. What sort of principles underpin the selection of an appropriate partner? You have to be aware, that I think, and we both be in this situation, there are many more partners available mm -hmm. than you would necessarily choose because it has to be on the basis of a very deep value set and alignment about what education is for and the excellence of its outcomes. So those who only want to have a commercial partnership, that wouldn't be sufficient. Those who only want to have a superficial one, it wouldn't be. We call it an alliance model. Partnering is quite superficial. So we have a taxonomy, which goes everything from the level of sponsorship at one small level through to, would you have, for example, staff in common? Would you actually consider mm -hmm. co-investing in a project together? That's the alliance model, but it has to be overlain by a very strict values and ethical set Otherwise, it's not a flip campus model. It's just an unsuccessful campus model. Mm. So, Adam, recently, Victoria University received a national award for supporting first-generation students to attend university. And as you've mm. mentioned, 51% of your students are the first in their family to ever attend university. What sort of strategies does VU employ to achieve such impressive outcomes? And why do you think this is such an important focus? It's, it's very much a part of the not just to the ethos, but the outreach all the time. Hence, the partnering I mentioned, imagine if every local council in the west of Melbourne and beyond is partnering with us. Imagine when they do citizenship ceremonies, if they talk about the opportunities for newly arrived migrants to Australia, for example, to enhance their English language skills and a discipline. Imagine if it happens that we are just 500 metres down the road for those people. It's that kind of persistent outcome. And of course, word of mouth, social media, every other you know, piece of information you can use. But we find that collectively speaking to groups in where they are is much better than just doing open days of the traditional sort. In mm -hmm. fact, while those are wonderful, it has to be continuous work around the calendar all year long. And not only are you very passionately committed, I must say, to first-generation students, you are also very interested in looking at, you have said, reform and radical improvement in the area of gender equality and, of course, a very important area, preventing violence against women. Mm. What's VU doing to help address those issues? Look, it's so significant, this one, uh, Jacinda. I have to be honest with you, there's still a lot of important work to be done. And a national survey twice auspiced by Universities Australia showed it was completely unacceptable levels of aggression and violence towards women and other groups, First Nations students, gender diverse students, students from intersectional backgrounds of say disability and one of the above, and they weren't being picked up enough. So we actually, on the day that those results were loaded, we had a council meeting the next day. The day after that, I was on the phone speaking with the CEO of Our Watch, which is one of the leading non-government organizations, Watch Standing for Women and Their Children. And uh, the CEO's name is Patricia Kinnersley, saying, what could we do as an exemplar to really address this in an area which hadn't been 
deeply enough in the past. We are now doing that for in a five-year partnership plan. So all I can say is we'll have to come back and have this discussion in a year or mm. two to see how it's working, but it must work and it must be addressed. And of course, these are long-term solutions that you're looking to put in place to address some long-standing issues yeah. in our society. But if we move to the physical resources yep. now, so we've been talking about some of the issues and I guess some of the philosophy of what you're about VU is a little unusual in that it provides a high-rise campus mm -hmm. right in the city of Melbourne. There are no lecture theatres, which is, our, I guess, almost our um, iconic image of a university. Yep. How are the students responding to this? And what are you aiming to achieve for this new high-rise campus building? I think the height is less important than the aspiration. The aspiration is sky high, but the height just facilitates it. So if you look at what's been designed, and this is over an eight-year period, my predecessors did the design, students if affected and influenced the design of each room. Just to go back to the model. So remember I said before, what we call the block or intensive learning is only four weeks at a time, maximum 35 students, same room, same teachers, four weeks, all finished and all assessment done. The students designed the shape, the configuration, the style, and the furniture of each room, and each one is different. There's no two rooms the same. All of the walls are what writable, all of them are projectable, and they're all fully Wi-Fi and uh, translation-enabled. So the idea of, of anyone having a lectern, lecterns, they don't exist. People walk around and they can move the furniture as they need. So this is truly, truly group-based work very often, and results are moderated each day and brought back the next day. So I've actually had the privilege of teaching in that block model last May in first year. I was astounded because in the first class there were say 27 students and they spoke 16 different languages mm. and they were very quiet in the first class. By the third week they were as voluble, as outgoing and as challenging as any I'd taught at ANU or Monash or Griffith or anywhere else I've worked. But it wasn't an initial, as I said before, ignition you had to find the key to turn on the vehicle and the block model was the key. Sounds very exciting and energising and it's very personalised learning that you're talking about. It's almost going back to a home model, it's familial. Mm. But I know that you believe just as passionately in the importance of being present on campus together physically but also the importance of the intersection with technology Correct. and remote learning. So how do you see those two playing out together as we move into 2023 and beyond? Look, just to be very honest about theories behind things, I've always believed in what they call the renunciation of opposites, okay? So it's not either or, but and, you know? And this applies to race relations, it applies to politics, it certainly comes, you know, from the Canadian background of bilingualism and biculturalism. So what I say here is it's not, for example, face-to-face -face or online. It's the best of digitally enabled education in both. And if that is seen to be just a continuum, People don't find that difficult. They carry it with them. There's no such thing. And look at what we're doing today with this, you know, the podcast. It's fully enabled digitally and in person in exactly the same time, moment and outcome. That's what we do in education too. It's such a beautiful, balanced, increasingly rare approach, I have to say. We're very um, into creating 
polarities and dualities and to have that balanced nuance approach I think is something that people are looking for it's not one or the other as you say and I'd like to draw now onto this study in 2010 from an historian Catherine Burke Mm. and she was looking at a report on multi-story primary schools in the UK and specifically at vertical schools in city locations throughout Europe she talked about the importance of those types of schools actually having much stronger connections to the local community and she I guess found that vertical schools are often less traditional in their Mm. approach to teaching. Looking to the future, given the smaller footprint that these high-rise campuses um, entail, do you think they're the future of education? Not for everyone and not for everything, but certainly for an increased, certainly minority, if not majority of people for whom education is something they're doing in addition to, again, and, not or, could be a job, it could be home care, it could be you know other work that's voluntary work, but they're not just studying and they cannot only find the time to survive and study without doing both together. So we've never before in human history had the question asked, how many years, student X, have you been working full-time and studying full-time? And the, incre- the number of is going up all the time. Now, pedagogically, we have to be very careful that's not excessive. But if we can facilitate both by being present in a CBD area where that employment is also located, where you can have it even in the buildings, I said before. For example, we'll, we have a, a business which is talking about how to run front of house, back of house, in the same building as people studying business. Mm. So therefore, what used to be, oh, we'll have a placement somewhere else, is now inside that tent, not outside it. That's the difference. So I think it's really pertaining to what people need at the time they need it. It's a model, it's an option, and it's an alternative that's obviously very exciting for many to Mm. explore. If you think about the breadth and depth of experience in the education sector that you have had at at secondary and tertiary level, where do you think schools are heading in 10 years' time? And I guess the, the question really is, what do you think will remain and what may need to change? Schools, I think, are the, the linchpin, the building block for everything in society. I mean, I love them for that reason. As you know, I come from a family of educators in different ways. And, you know, you see the fact that it's so transformational. But they are under pressure as well. Both at the same time, it's the best time to be teaching and the most challenging time to be teaching. Some schools have issues, for example, of violence between students and things like, you know, that or vaping, all these issues which are real, you know, get in the way of life. But then at the same time, we're aware of it as never before. So knowledge of that in advance means we can deal with it. So I would say this, the systems will have to change. The federal funding systems will probably alter. And I do believe that the connection with what might be called skills-based education in schools will change radically. What is sometimes called vet in schools or, you know, a vocational major, I think that's going to grow. And how do you think schools, particularly, I guess, for our audience, but also universities, prepare for this change? The best thing to me, and we, we spoke of it earlier, is if you have the fundamentals super strong, that all the disciplines and the uplift and the working together, you can then experiment with these new areas of digital uplift or you know, intersectional work for the, the students themselves, performative work, whatever it might be. But without the base, the superstructure doesn't happen. But with, with the base, it can. So I would say to schools that have that base, like this one so beautifully, this can be an exemplar for many, many others. Adam, thank you for sharing your insights. In particular, the concept of catching fire in education and finding that moment of ignition. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. We'll pause and I look forward to continuing the conversation again. Total pleasure. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Illumin, a podcast by Brisbane Girls Grammar School. Music for this podcast was written and performed by former Year 12 student Alicia Seng. To ensure you never miss an episode of Illumin, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And to learn more about the school, visit the website at www.bggs.qld.edu.au.